0: Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. (sighs) Anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee, you can get the podcast ad-free. For me,
1: I think the ads are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit.
0: Anyway, whatever you like, do something And have a go at it. ACAST Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAST Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule, as always, is the podcast where I ask people to tell me the five things from any time in their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish, but they also have to pick one thing that they wish they could bury and forget. My guest in this episode is Neil Malarkey. Neil was a founder member of the Comedy Store Players, the world-famous improvisation team, who still perform regularly at the Comedy Store in London every Sunday night, as they have done for the past 37 years. You'd think that would be enough for one career, but Neil has kept himself busy. He's performed in double acts with Nick Hancock, Tony Hawks and Mike Myers, of course, with whom he toured the UK and performed a sellout show at Edinburgh's Fringe. He's performed and written four one-man shows, including Don't Be Needy, Be Succeedy, which won the Fringe Award for Best Satire and spawned a best-selling book. Neil starred with Eddie Izzard in the set-out West End show One Word Improv and has been on TV in Whose Line Is It Anyway, The Manageress, Lovejoy, Smith & Jones, Saturday Live, QI, Have I Got News For You, Absolutely and Colin Sandwich, again amongst others. And he's been in movies such as Leon the Pig Farmer, the Austin Powers films International Man of Mystery and Gold Member. ...as well as Spice World. Neil has been heard on Just a Minute, the news quiz, quote-unquote... ...I'm sorry I have no clue, Loose Ends and the Unbelievable Truth... ...and he trains people online and in person on communication skills. He's written a number of books on the subject, his latest being In the Moment... ...about how to build your confidence, communication and creativity at work. Anyway, that's Neil Malarkey's work. But let's find out about him, shall we? Actually, just before we start... This episode was recorded in June. Sometimes it takes quite a while to get these things out. But that was just after the death of Neil's dear friend and comedy store colleague, the great Andy Smart, who Neil talks of in this episode. So let's all be gentle, shall we? Have fun. And as long as a little sort of voice thing, work. Little
1: working, things are going, whoa, whoa, like that, okay. Then
0: we're there. Well, <laughs> I very much drift into these things, as you probably know. So, I mean, yes. whenever you're ready to talk about the five things you want to put into a time capsule, I'm ready to listen to it. All right. Okay, so what
1: would be the first thing you'd put in? Well, I'm going to go with a fly ball. Mm. Do, you, do you know what a fly ball is, Mike? Uh, is that in baseball? Yes. yes. Now, unlike cricket, where mm-hmm. we gently throw the ball back to the players... Yes, In baseball, you keep the ball. And so there's a bit of a fight when it comes into the crowd. So (laughs) there's quite a backstory to this. This was 1972, Shea Stadium. And we were on a holiday of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. My mother had been told by her father, she grew up in Crewe in the north of England, near Manchester. Mm -hmm. And he said, when I die, which he died before I was born... And actually, then his wife died just after I was born. So the only person I knew of my mother's side was my great-grandmother, who's called Granny, and she lived till 93. Eventually, Mm. she did die, and my mum said, I'm going to honour what my dad said, which is the house will become something wonderful. You know, we're going to spend it on an amazing something. The amazing something was a trip to the United States, to America. Brilliant. So we had this extraordinary thing. Pan Am, in those days, had a book. (laughs) <laughs> where you sort of put in it's like a registry of I'm willing to share my house, you swap houses with people. Right, yeah. I remember that. It says Airbnb, kind of, except you give your house to them and you so we ended up going for three weeks to Santa Barbara, uh, and then I think three weeks in Florida by somebody who worked at Cape Kennedy. That was bookended by a bit of time in New York, wow. where we just stayed in a hotel and did the trip around the island. And one of my dad's former colleagues now lived in America. He's an American, uh, lived in New Jersey. My dad had worked for an American company. Uh, He'd gone for a job, which meant moving to Paris when I was two and a half or so. And I have no memory of life before France. So I consider myself quite French in a way. And so when I came back to England... I went to the local primary school and they said, oh, he's from French. They didn't know anybody <laughs> exotic. <laughs> and I struggled with language because you don't learn to read in many other countries till you're quite old. So I had, I couldn't read at five and a half, let alone English. Mm. And I struggled with the language sometimes. And there, I had a toy rabbit. And then when in class somebody showed a picture of a rabbit, I didn't know the name for it because it was Lapin. Lapin, So that's sort of some of the backstory, why this fly ball means so much, because when we were in Paris, this American man called John Neverson was my dad's sort of boss, I think. And he was just lovely. Mm. And he looked a bit like my dad, bald with glasses. And he had these great (laughs) stories. He had this most beautiful accent. I said to my mum once, mummy, he talks like a real cowboy. Uh. And he talked about how he went hiking in the mountains and there'd be bears who'd come and ruffle at the tent uh, <laughs> at night. And this John Neverson was kind of my hero. So it was John Neverson who took us to Shea Stadium in 1972. Uh, my dad wasn't there because he had a job. So he wasn't there for quite a lot of the trip. Yeah. So we drove into Shea Stadium across the bridge into Manhattan. Incredibly exciting. Yeah. And so he's... I don't know, late fifties or something like that. I may be doing him a disservice because that's when, when you're. 10, he's old. He's yes. old. He's, old now, he's, not, he's not my age. And again, <laughs> just to digress a bit, his son was a Rhodes Scholar uh, who came to study in Oxford. So we mm-hmm. used to go and visit him. He used to go and stay with us. And he was he was an, uh, this exotic thing called a conscientious objector. Wow! Imagine that during the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. I don't want to fight. And and I th- thought, wow, that's a that one, that's the thing. Anyway, John Neverson's driving set me and my two brothers. I'm the youngest of three. Mm. They're four and five years older. So I always thought I didn't get as much leeway as them, but of course I did. <laughs> <laughs> no. They could do stuff and I had to go to bed, but eventually I realised I could get away with more.
0: So how old were you then? About 11? I was 10. 10. 10
1: and they were 14 and 15. So mm. it's the Houston Astros versus the New York Mets. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> It means nothing to me. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but there was things like there was somebody hit a home run called, uh, and this is how I'd pronounced him. His name was Jim Beauchamp. But <laughs> yes. of course, he, Jim Beecham. Jim Beecham has got <laughs> a home run. John Neverson has never got a fly ball in his life. He's been going for his whole life. And we British boys are obsessed with the possibility that we might get one. Mm. We're a long way up. But one comes our way. Nobody's sitting next to us. And the ball hits the bench, trundles along. And then a mass of humanity jumps onto the (laughs) bench to try and get the ball. And John, head down, where's he gone? Where's he gone? Where's the ball? Where's the ball? And he gradually emerges aloft with what left of his hair and his glasses (laughs) askew. And he's got the ball. He's, He's holding it up with the biggest smile I've ever seen. And that he said, "This is for you, Oh my word, this is for you, So the ball represents so much. it represents Paris, France, mm. America. I love them fair with America. I love American comedy. Mm. I love American diners. <laughs> I love you can go to American diner and they keep giving you more coffee, and it's nice coffee, and it's not a hundred pounds for a latte. No. um it's just things like that that I thought the ball represented to me so much John Neverson had never got it but he gave it to us Uh, my first time in America which meant I'd always had a love for it ever since Mm. and uh, so anybody with an American accent is interesting to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll do one for the rest of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> would you? Yes. Anyway, I've gone on and on somewhat. So it's, it's no, a no, not ball. gone on
0: and on at all. Absolutely. What a delightful thing for John to do. His entire life, he'd waited for that moment.
1: He'd waited. The first thing he did was give it to you. And gave it to us. And, and it's in our house or maybe in my mum's house. <sighs> and it was just representative of so much. We dreamed of going to America, I suppose, and then... We had this amazing holiday. So we, we swapped houses, Santa Barbara, north of Los Angeles and California. From there, we had trips to Disneyland and San Francisco and L.A. Mm. And then we swapped houses with somebody who worked at Cape Canaveral, Cape Kennedy. We went to Disney World. Now, most in 1972, most Americans had been to one or neither. Mm. We went to both in the same month. <laughs> um, we got a VIP trip around Cape Kennedy it was still very much the moon program was, was a thing. Yeah. You know, I remember because uh, Mike, I fear I'm older than I dare admit, but (laughs) you know, remember July 21st, 1969, Neil Armstrong, and we were listening on the radio. Imagine that, you know, we had to sort of stop the car and listen. The first man on the moon. So all of this was involved with this holiday, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And in the house where you stay, they tend to replicate your family. Mm. So I stayed in the youngest boy's room and he had a million Charlie Brown books, (laughs) Peanuts, you know, which I read all the time. Mm. Uh, And in Santa Barbara, they also had a table tennis table. And so I just became obsessed with table tennis and kept saying to my brothers, come, please play. And they said, no, we want to watch telly. want to go to bed. No, come play. (laughs) All right, dad, mum, please play. And then I became uh, very keen on table tennis. I went to my secondary school and there was a very good table tennis club there and I represented the Surrey schools, Mm. uh, became a county umpire, officiated at the World Table Tennis Championships. And things like that. So just, just all these elements... Everything coming out from that moment. Yeah, there, there were. And when I met a, a man with an American accent, turns out to be a Toronto accent, uh, uh, Mike Myers, some years later, of course, oh, yes, him. and uh, or, or that comedy, which I loved, and there was a sitcom I absolutely adored called Arnie, short for Arnold. Mm-hmm. Only ran for one series, but we were obsessed by it. And it was this great idea that the blue-collar worker, for some reason I don't know, became a boss. <laughs> so he threw away his overalls and put on the suit. Mm. And, of course... That was the fun of it—the fish out of water. His family didn't take him seriously, just like we didn't take my dad seriously. My dad was a marketing director of this uh, oil and gas firm, but he—he he was. We didn't take him seriously at home. He was a bald-headed bloke with glasses, and my brother, very cheekily, kept sending off for brochures for wigs. And my dad kept going. What's going on here? What's going on? Why, why, why do I keep getting these? Until eventually. There's a knock on the door. Sunday evening, <laughs> some bloke has driven from Essex saying, you keep asking for these brochures for wigs. <laughs> Would you like to try one? I've driven from Essex to try and see. Sort of <laughs> <laughs> I have a selection and, here. And and <laughs> my dad sort of, I think he discovered, so he said, my, shouted at my brother, Stephen, come here. So my brother had to apologise. Uh. And uh, we poured a beer for this guy who'd come all the way to, with his samples. Mm-hmm. And, of course, now, humorously, Stephen isn't quite as bald as my dad, but we've all got that gene. Lovely thing to remember
0: him by, I think. I think it's quite nice turning into your parents. <laughs> yes. Isn't it a marvellous thing that um, we always think of the sort of the British gent and that sort of, no, after you, madam, of course, no, please take my chair, and that sort of thing, in a way, a part that we've all played in our lives. And yet we think of Americans as go-getters, drivers, you know, determined, I'm going to win. I'm going to be number one. Come on. Woo. All that sort of thing. And yet John turns out to be this, in a way, that sort of American person that isn't publicized very much, which I think a lot of Americans are, which is the homestead, family, friends. Hey, you first.
1: Exactly. And there is the the, the icon of the southern gentleman, which is, uh, Mm -hmm. but I only know the world through individuals. So that's America to me, that family. Mm -hmm. That's America to me. It's it's hospitality, it's friendliness, it's Seinfeld, it's Frasier, it's Cheers. It's that lovely sense of humour. Yeah. So whilst I recognise what you're saying, those exist and they exist in any society, any country. But that was my first notion. And as I say, I suppose I'd watched cowboy movies. For me, Americans are that. They are kind, generous hospital. But of course, I say Americans. The Americans, many of whom I've encountered, have been like that. And uh, whatever other people have perceptions of, we just only know really through the individuals whom we meet. Have you ever been tempted to go there and live there? Yes, I was. I mean, I dreamed of it, actually. Mm. Um, So maybe that was what was in my mind, perhaps, when I started doing a double act with Mike Myers. So Mm. he was selling tickets for a show I was in. So it was Cambridge Footlights except we couldn't call ourselves that. We'd gone to Australia with Martin Bergman, whom you know, who's yes. uh, Rita Ruslan's husband. Just pe- after we did, I think. Exactly. <laughs> we weren't riding on your coattails, basically, So <laughs> we hadn't had a hit record. So he took <laughs> us to the Adelaide Festival in Sydney and so forth. And then we came back and we're out of work, out of money. So we signed on and we all wanted to, to carry on in showbiz. So we, everyone says, write what you know. Mm. So we wrote about signing on, supplementary benefit. And we wanted to be Dario Faux, who <laughs> wrote Accidental Death of an Anarchist. Yeah. This kind of Italian activist wrote this amazing play that was on at the West End forever about a communist sympathiser being killed in a police station and reenacting it, according to the police report, where he was a bit too near the ledge and, oh, he tripped sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, And it ran forever. And I loved it. Went to see with my mum. And so we, we thought we'd write a Dario Faux farce set in a supplementary benefit office. It was called Feeding the Benefit. And then because we had the theatre, we thought, we'll try and get a bit more money, and we'll do a late-night review as well. Mm. And we we had a title in search of a show, and I think the title was made by David Tyler, whom people will know as an award-winning radio producer. Mm. The title was, Get Your Coat, Dear, We're Leaving. <laughs> <laughs> so we wrote some sketches and borrowed some sketches. We couldn't call it Help Cambridge Footless anymore because the new lot had it, so... Hugh Dennison, uh, Steve Punt and others, and Nick mm. Hancock, but we sort of ex-Cambridge Footlights. So Mike Myers was living in Notting Hill, walked past the pub theatre, the gate theatre, and for all Cambridge Footlights, I know them, Peter Cook, Monty Python, yeah. knocked on the door and they, they don't know who he, he was. <laughs> what do you want to do? Well, can I help somehow? Thinking he might meet the comedians. And they said, you can paint the set. <laughs> so <laughs> he painted our set. You can sell tickets. So the first time I met Mike Myers, he was sitting in a wheelchair um, because we'd used all the wheelchairs on stage because we thought it would be funny. Terrible idea. While the audience came in, we'd be sitting there eating crisps and things like that. <laughs> and it just looked kind of like we didn't care. And anyway, so we had all the chairs. He was sitting in a wheelchair, cold because no central heating, with swirly carpet on this room above a pub, got hat and scarf on, uh, in a wheelchair, selling these kind of raffle tickets as that are a ticket. And I got talking. And, of course, he's funny. He makes me laugh. Yeah. And he says, well, I've come. I used to be with Second City in Canada. And I'd heard of Second City because Second City, Chicago, a lot of people went to Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. particularly with the Blues Brothers. I loved that film. Mm. So I, and he was amazed I'd ever heard of it. I said, no, great. And he'd been in the touring company, come over to England because his um, his girlfriend had a British passport because of her grandmother. And he had a British passport because his parents are from Liverpool. And then we did a double act. We formed the Comedy Store Players there was one time he rang me up and said, Get some scripts that you've written to the Savoy now. I like, Why? Why? Because Lorne Michaels is there, who's oh. the executive producer of Saturday Night Live. So I, I, in those days, scripts I'd, I'd typed them or written on long hands. So I photocopied them, rewrote them, and <laughs> typed them up. and was a sort of greasy envelope i delivered to the concierge at the savoy that didn't lead to anything um (laughs) and i went to visit mike he was on saturday night live by 1989 Mm. and as people may know there's always a guest host who's somebody famous that week it was mel gibson so i arrive and mike says come now to 30 rock 30 rockefeller plaza to nbc so they let me in and this is sort of midnight tuesday they're writing things because they have a read-through at 10 o'clock wednesday Mm -hmm. and mike's thinking of ideas Mel Gibson pops into his room <laughs> and Mike says, apparently you can do a Scottish accent. Yeah. So Mike writes a sketch. That sketch is in the rehearsal, the rehearsal with the audience at nine 30, but they always do too much. So that was cut before oh. the 1130 live thing. So I got to meet Mel Gibson and Mike was mortified because his sketch wasn't in. Yeah. He was, did, did a tiny part as Ron Wood in a Rolling Stones sketch that day. So we kept in touch. So th- this was all kind of thinking, oh, I might come to America. Mm-hmm. This would be fun. My favourite art form is American sitcom. Hmm. Didn't quite happen with SNL. Then Mike did Wayne's World. So then he rang me up. I'm on holiday in Provence. He rings up and said, can you get to L.A. in three days' time? (sighs) Okay, Because I've got this movie that uh, because of Wayne's World doing so well, I gave an Oscar to the Best Short Film winners, and they have got this property called So I Married an Axe Murderer. The one thing we know is it's not going to be called that because that name will put people off. Okay, <laughs> yeah. you, uh, I, uh, I I was all lined up to write with Conan O'Brien. Oh my god! It was one of the one of the writers on Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. uh, but it was then writing on The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. But James L. Brooks says Conan can't play with you, so can you get here? So I'm kind of oh, all right. Um, but I, I'm preparing a show for the Edinburgh Finch yes, uh, dance called Memoirs important. of Lord Naughty, directed by <laughs> Lee Simpson. So I said, all right, but, you know, whatever. So I am I have to fly back from Leon, land at sort of 9 a.m., go home, have a shower, quickly sort of type up the latest draft of the Edinburgh show, drop it off in the cab, the limo, because I'm now on, in, under studio budgets, <laughs> drop it off in, in Lee Simpson's house, which is in Hammersmith, en route to the M4. And then I think, well, oh, I'm, going, I'm going business class to L.A., what i must do is join the ba club you know the air miles yes. So i, I write a film in my and then i need to go and buy a stamp stamp you know that's how it was and then i've done all this and then i go to check-in at that stage i was flying to scotland quite a lot because there was a thing called funny farm that was on b sky b mike i'm just thinking i've done about four hours on this but anyway just keep going b sky b uh hosted by nicholas parsons you know when you're flying to scotland you turn up with 20 minutes yeah. when you're flying to la no they said, the, the bus is already on the tarmac. What a twerp I was. <laughs> Missed my flight to LA, my first Hollywood gig. And I've been too busy no. trying to get air miles, which means I can probably get a flight to Reading. Uh, something like that. So, oh no. Then they said, we could fly you to New York a bit later and then fly you from New York tomorrow morning. So I have to ring up my agent. He rings the studio. Oh blimey. So I arrive in LA Friday morning, a bit frazzled, slightly (laughs) stupid. You missed your flight. Okay, your big break for Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And you missed the flight because air miles. Okay, (laughs) so we get straight into it. We're at the Four Seasons. And... A few hours after I've arrived, I'm thinking I'm not funny. You know, I'm surround. Mike's got his people. He's we've got a script assistant. He's typing stuff. He's got another assistant who goes off and th- and researches stuff. Mike is doing fine, and I feel so not funny. Mm. I feel even less funny because suddenly there's an announcement. The Rodney King verdict has come through. Do you remember this, Rodney yeah, King? So yeah. somebody on video had been seen being beaten up by white police officers. Mm. The trial was held in Orange County for some reason, and the mostly white jury found the police officers innocent. So L.A. is now a war zone. Yes, And I'm in the Four Seasons, but it's a prison now because there's smoke in the air, helicopters everywhere. It's Saigon trying to get... (laughs) basically and we're trying to write comedy i can't open the windows now because it's all full of smoke the whole place is on fire the national guard are called to the beverly center it's like the army being called to harrods because there's looting and there's people being pulled out of vehicles and then so we do eventually do a read through and then i say well what do we do now and the director kind of says well i don't think it's much going to happen why do you go to Santa Barbara for the weekend? So that's fine. that's fine. Of course, there's no <laughs> hotels at all in Santa Barbara because everyone's trying to get out because it feels dangerous in LA. Mm. So we end up in Solvang. Solvang is the Danish capital of America. So <laughs> it's kind of it probably was a Danish hamlet, but it's full of people dressed in Danish wear. Uh, it's It's completely different. Danish pastries. nobody shuts locks their door. It's like living in you know, a movie. Eventually, we go to Santa Barbara and then I go to New York because Mike's back in Saturday Night Live. We spend a few days trying to write. And so eventually, cut the long story short, the movie is made. It's called I Married an Ex-Murderer. And people go, why would I take my family to see that? We want to see Wayne's World. That sounds fun. This is about an ex-murderer. So these are my dalliances with Hollywood. Mm. So in the end, I decided not to go and just keep in touch with Mike. So I, I fly over every now and again. He's over here sometimes where he loves England, by the way, not just because of his family, but they has such roots here. He just, you know, he loves English culture and theatre and he loves English military. And we went to Bletchley last time, just things <laughs> like that. The stuff we did, uh, I suppose, uh, in the 20th century, he, he kind of is in mm. love with that because his mother was actually one of those people. You know when there's a map and somebody's got a snooker queue sort of pulling aeroplanes? That's her job, sort of pushing things across Europe. Good Lord. That was my first thing.
0: (laughs) That is the first thing. That's it. That's a fly ball. What an amazing thing from that mishit. Yes. Out of that mishit comes your memories of everything to do with America.
1: I'll go to my next thing, Mike, which is a walnut tree, which ties into France as well. This is a walnut Mm. tree that was in the garden of our family home. I'm five and a half. One day, my mum opens the letter to say, oh, good, Stephen's got a place at this grammar school. What? In England. We're leaving France. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, I thought it was Stephen's fault. I was bereft. I was leaving my home, my family. England was foreign. It was somewhere I visited to meet my granny and my my other relative, who was my father's great-aunt, Kathleen, in Northcourt, in in Wales. Mm -hmm. But I was so upset. I was being taken away from all... My best friend lived... at. Across the road, Thierry. Where was this house? Was it? Um... This was near Paris, near um, right. Versailles. So my dad worked in Paris in the avenue. So suburbia, to... really. Suburbia. Yeah. Kind of a new build bungalow.
0: No, but even French. new build bungalows in France have <laughs> lovely walnut trees.
1: Walnut trees and goûter and baguettes and croissants mm-hmm. and oysters. <laughs> and of course, when I go to France now, I feel at home and I love yeah. the sort of more rustic architecture. But the walnut tree. In the garden and I went and I told it <laughs> and I said, I will be back. Hmm. I'm five. I've just learned the word vow, V-O-W. I said to the tree, I vow that I will return. Huh. And I haven't. Oh. Because fairly quickly when we came back to England in Surrey, I was at school, I had new friends, I was fine, apart from not being very good at English. <laughs> hmm. For example, somebody said use the word um, the French word is sur, sur. So a female sibling, should we say? Hmm. And I had two brothers. So I knew that in French, you often use the word, but put an E on the end to make the feminine. Yes. You know, you know that stuff. Did you study languages? No, no. What did you study, Mike? I studied law. Oh, law. All right. (laughs) No use to (laughs) anyone. Oh, contraire. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so I I say, do you know this word? And I said, well, it's, it's girl brother, girl brother so i put a feminine <laughs> onto what i knew sibling to be mm. and they said no it's sister sister real i didn't know that word uh, anyway that's an example of where i struggled but fairly quickly i you know i was fine mm. i was fine i was at school playing football in the back garden watching the big match life was okay yes uh, so i've yet to return to that tree but i want to go there i want to see it'll probably be much smaller than i remember but there was lots of fun to be had i was too small to get up to the first branch so my brothers would help me up and then of course they'd leave me there i couldn't get down (laughs) and sometimes i did fall and sort of graze my knee grazed knees were a big thing oh yeah when you are little, you have grazed knees all that i remember looking at my knees thinking will they ever not be grazed
0: (laughs) (laughs) a permanent scar
1: yeah well i do have a permanent scar actually which i won't show you now but um there were (laughs) dogs in france of course and everyone thought oh every dog's got rabies Mm. Um, and there was a big Alsatian, and that's why I'm scared of dogs, because the Alsatian would chase you. And so I'm on my bike, and are going down the hill, and uh, I go straight over, and I've got this massive, sort of, I think there might have been a stick sticking out of my knee. And of course, I now have a dog. I've been married to my wife for nearly a quarter of a century, and she mm-hmm. spent all that time trying to persuade me. Eventually, my son sort of got it over the line. Uh, We have a -a cockapoo, so I'm a bit less scared.
0: (laughs) Uh, You can't be scared of a -a (laughs) cockapoo. Well, he's got teeth and everything. True. My parents had not lived in France, a bit lower down, down near Chateauroux in the centre of France. And they had a large garden and a huge walnut tree. In the garden. And all the locals were constantly coming around saying, do you want those walnuts? <laughs> and they, they'd go, no, not really. We're a couple for Christmas. And they'd go, oh, would, would it be right if we collected them? All very sort of friendly. And uh, then they'd turn up and give them some bottles of wine and things. Walnut oil, of course, is worth a fortune. <laughs> so they would collect it every year. But uh, the thing I remember about it was
1: below the tree were all
0: these walnuts with a little hole in them which have been made by dormice.
1: Is that right? I um I don't remember I just remember if you fell on some of these husks it was quite painful on your bottom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what then would drive you back? What would make you do that fulfill that wish? Um my brother has been actually uh, my older brother. So I, I I don't I should do that really. I, of course when I go to France I just love it and think oh I would dream- I used to dream of having a house in France. Mm. And there was one time 20 years ago Oh gosh, that my wife and I somehow we managed to get a month off. She had left work by that stage, but but I had a month off, which is unusual for freelance. Yeah, uh, as it was, but I sort of I just fancied the idea of a month, and also it was out of season because we didn't have children then. So we stayed a month in this house, and it was mm-hmm. just, in my mind it was this could be a tryout because right. I just envy those people who I'm popping over to France for the weekend or for Easter. Or, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll be in France in our house from July till September. <laughs> yes. That kind of stuff. Bastards. Yeah, uh, yes, exactly. So I thought this could be tried. So we ha- we found this house that was not far from Toulouse, nowhere near a village, really. I had to drive to get the croissant, except on a Tuesday when the croissant van came to us and the farmhouse mm-hmm. next to us. Ah. Um And it had a pool. It was just fabulous. And because it was out of season, we had about a six bedroom house, Mm. uh, hardly anything. Well, uh, and of course, we took it for a month, I think maybe got a better deal. And of course, what was interesting there was that the couple who had it lived in a Jeet sort of on the same site. And it was quite hard work. You had to keep the thing going. Yeah. And they said that they'd only recently moved there. But as they were sort of tidying the garden, (laughs) they heard the previous owner. Had drunk quite a lot. So there were lots of bottles of vodka and rose discarded <laughs> all in the undergrowth. Yes. And I'm I'm thinking I do remember that. Thinking five o'clock. Oh, a glass of rose would be perfect, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. And then, <laughs> and you're nowhere near anything. You can't even walk to a shop. So I did think actually this is a much better idea to rent. Because otherwise, the stories you hear, as well as I'm popping over, is I'm popping over because the roof's fallen in. Yep. Marcel, the bloke who looks after it, who's 93, has just fallen over.
0: And now, of course, popping over is not as easy.
1: It's not as easy. So having to do insurance and let it out and keep an eye on the gutters and stuff and uh, so forth, I thought, no, I don't need to do that. I can, If I need to, I'll. we can rent a house again.
0: Yes, that's what my wife says. I still hunger for a little house somewhere in France. I'd be quite happy for it to be just outside of Calais. I really would. And in fact, if you go to any of these places, within five kilometres of what looks like a terrible industrial estate, you'll find the most gorgeous little French village. Yes, Perfect little
1: restaurant. Cassoulet, but a perno, uh, mm-hmm. whatever, a glass of something that costs not too much. And hello, Marcel, or Jean-Pierre, ça va? Or Sophie? <laughs> uh, so I love that Thought of rustic, the village, the, the the stone they have, the bonhomie, the market maybe once a week. That's mm-hmm. that picture is very seductive to me. But I purged it actually in that month. I don't need to have a property, no, because um, Alison, who's my wife, is very clear. Why would you want to have extra hassle? And also, why would you want to be
0: tied to one place where exactly. you can go anywhere yes. in France?
1: You can go anywhere in the world,
0: you know. Indeed, And if you get teenage children, they are so bored. I know, I've taken them there. I remember my teenage daughter and her teenage friend saying, Um, Jean Pierre from the village has said, Would it be all right if we went to the local disco on his motorbike? And she was sort of 14. And I went, N-n-n. My wife said, Yes, that'd be fine. <laughs> I thought, what. You
1: can't possibly...
0: They've got to do it. They've but got presumably
1: it. you went in your slippers and pyjamas to pick her up at midnight Almost certainly, something. I have
0: done that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. of course. I sat outside discos <laughs> waiting to make sure that she got home fine. I once followed the bus and then kept a distance, made sure she got home safe without telling her that I was following her.
1: That's very good.
0: My grandson the other day was saying to me... He was sort of telling me off. He said, you talk to everyone in the street, Grandma." And I said, well, I like talking to people in the street. If I see something interesting, I will turn to the nearest person and say, that's interesting, isn't it? And, and start a conversation about it. Now, quite often people look at me as if I'm slightly mad. But generally, particularly older people, they are slightly grateful for the fact that somebody has spoken to them. Yes, And I said to him, now, I've just spoken to that lady there. We had a nice conversation about how ridiculous the house prices were. And she's gone on her way, but that may be the only person she speaks to today. And he said, oh. I said, and if we lived in France, it would be rude not to say hello to someone you passed in the street. If you're walking through a village or a town in in France, if you walk past someone, you automatically say, bonjour. Ça va? Bonjour. And you go into a bar, you say hello to everyone. You shake hands with people and you kiss the people you know before you order a drink. And I think that's a, such a pleasant thing.
1: Yes. And I don't know if that still persists outside London where I live. You live in mm. Tunbridge Wells. Certainly when you are more countryish, you will say hello if you're crossing somebody yeah. in, in the country lane. Whereas anybody who comes to London, uh, if you look somebody in the eye, it feels dangerous. But <laughs> yes, at, uh, when you do get a smile... Like in the tube when there's something slightly odd, uh, and you get a—I love to try and catch somebody's eye and do a little—a little smile of—is mm-hmm. that your marmalade sandwich or whatever? Uh, or or uh, so I do. I do look for moments of connection, but of course, it's deeply embarrassing for your children. Mm-hmm. Please don't talk to that stranger. Don't 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 say nice <laughs> things to the teacher about me. Just. To pretend it didn't happen mm-hmm. It's is where they are so your grandson I think is younger than that but uh yeah why not talk to people I don't mind no
0: I think so but and I think you're right everybody needs a walnut tree in their life
1: <laughs> well it's kind of my thing I suppose one day I've, I've started writing another book the book I've just finished is about my work in business which mm. uh, where I've 25 years ago I said I want to do something slightly different so I started teaching improv to business people and then Gradually done that for teamwork, leadership, and many aspects of work in organizations. Yes, it's an amazing thing you've done. Well, thank you very much. And I love it. I love it. But the next book I'd like to write, I, uh, I don't know if about you, Mike, but when you get a book, the first thing I turn to is the acknowledgements. I want to see who's <laughs> helped you, the writer get to this place, because it's a real headache, writing a book. You know? <laughs> yes. In fact, somebody said, you know, writers are people who hate writing more than anyone else. Because if you have to write, it feels like such an imposition on your life. You've got a deadline, it's an essay crisis, you know, squared. Mm. However, when I look at the acknowledgements, I look thank you to my partner, thank you to my publisher, thank you to this person I met 100 years ago, I'm sort of want to know the stories behind the ent- enterprise. That's right. what I'm interested. In. So I thought, what about a whole book of that? Thank you to the people and the places that have shaped me. And so some of the stories I've told you now and some of the scrapes I've got into or some of the delights. So I, I want to finish by saying, and there's one place I haven't visited yet, a returned to is that tree. And I must. And and maybe if I get this book commissioned, I'll, it'll give me the money to go and do it. You know, I can justify because <laughs> I haven't been able to justify just going to that place for no good reason other than it's where my first memories of life are. So that that may be the next thing. So I I haven't got the walnut tree. (laughs) I don't even know what it looks like. I don't even know if it still exists. It might have been knocked down to make way for David Cameron's garden shed or something. But uh, (laughs) let's uh, let's hope not.
0: Indeed. All right. That's two things we put in there, Neil. Let's find out what the third thing is. Right. It's at time. We'll be back very soon. So thank you for bearing with us. Welcome back to part two of my time capsule with the lovely Neil Malarkey. Let's find out what else he'd like to put in his time capsule.
1: The third thing is the platform we're on now, Zoom. So I don't know if you remember the exact date. I do. March the 16th, 2020. Uh, I'd done the Comedy Store the night before, a Sunday, and then the Prime Minister said, actually, nobody should go to restaurants and bars anymore. He didn't actually shut them. (laughs) And so the Comedy Store said, we'll shut for three weeks. Uh, And I thought, oh, well, three weeks, that's nice. I'll get down to my book. And then, of course, the three weeks became much longer than that. Mm. Uh, And I very quickly thought, crikey, I've got no business (laughs) anymore. So the work I mostly do is teaching people improv and other theatre skills to help with their creativity, communication. And suddenly I realised everything I do, whether it's the comedy store players or this teaching workshop stuff, requires a lot of people to be in the same room close together. Which mm. is exactly what we can't be doing in the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. And I literally thought, well, right, what can I do? <laughs> and then I just reached, I reached out to people mm. and somebody said, wealth is the thing you have if you lost all your money. And I realized then I had a lot of friends who are willing to help and share. And they say, let's do, let's do a thing. I had done a Zoom a few years before with somebody. So I said, let's do this, you know, I download the app. Let's try this thing. Oh, hello, how are you? How's it going? And then somebody else said actually we've been doing virtual training for years because zoom has got a thing called breakout rooms have you done a breakout room mike no i haven't no well it's imagine there's 12 of us or 200 of us you can press a button and we all go into little rooms little Mm. virtual rooms and that was a revelation because when i do my workshops I'll say, okay, here's what I'm talking about. Improv is the thing about listening, working with the uncertainty, working with ambiguity. You think this, you feel that, but let's do something that we co-create together. And of course, that's mm. really powerful in organizations, dealing with clients, dealing with your team if you're a leader. But then I say, I'll demo it with somebody or a few people, then go away and do it in small groups. And then that's where the learning takes place, because (laughs) they can feel, oh, right, I'm doing it. I'm not being looked at. I don't feel uneasy, but I can have fun with this. And then realize that, for example, if I'm doing a game, which is one word at a time, I went to the and then I've got an idea and you come in with a different idea. But that's great. That diversity is fun. That divergence of thought creates novelty and exciting innovation, if you like. So I couldn't do that on Zoom. So I tried a few things and found that when, uh, if everyone's got their mic on, somebody laughs, you hear them and nothing else. Mm. But then if I say, okay, mute apart from you, Mike, let's talk about that. And what's in Mm -hmm. your background? Oh, I see. It's the heebie-jeebies gold disc. (laughs) So I suddenly started, I can do a Zoom workshop like I do improv shows. So I, I. what's that? It was a nice cushion behind there. Uh, okay, everyone stand up. And if we're in gallery view, we can make a shape together. And even yeah. hold up a letter and see if we can write a word. So suddenly I found <laughs> that if I bring my comedy, my improv, my need, dare I say, for engagement to Zoom, Mm. People will love it because normally Zoom is, and now more teams, it's kind of somebody droning on, not even looking at the camera, looking down at their script, or looking at the screen, reading out some boring thing or a slide with a whole bunch of stuff that you can't picture. Mm. So I started saying, I'm going to do Zoom. So I said, I'll do it. And initially it was, okay, just a few people. Can you gather some friends and I'll have a go at it? I'll just try it. I'll do a pilot. And then did some pilots and I was thinking about neuroscience of um, what you need to do is when you're doing something like this, change the dynamic every three to five minutes because that's mm-hmm. how long our attention spans. So have somebody else talk, do a slide, do a chat, do a breakout, get people to to write things in chat, which is what I love. I always start off with, where are you? Okay, I'm in Tunbridge Wells, but I'm in I'm in the spare room. I'm in the kitchen. I'm in the, yeah. the garden shed. What have you got on your feet? Slippers. Oh, no, nothing. Whatever. <laughs> are you wearing pants? Just stuff like that to make it fun yes uh, but breakout rooms really made a difference and zoom uh has breakout others have them but they're not quite as efficient with zoom you press a button boof they're gone press a button boof they're back mm. and you can do that they can go away for three minutes and they can come back and we haven't lost any energy whereas in real life they go off and they go and have a pee or coffee <laughs> um and so that zoom has been a, a godsend to me and uh, so during that period i even started doing sessions called bring some Vavavoom to your zoom <laughs> Which is how do we make this medium we are stuck in more engaging, more fun, more creative, more collaborative? And just simple things like what I'd learned, I'd been a television presenter, I think called O-1 for London and a few other things. Mm-hmm. The difference between an energized voice. And a non-energised voice. Now, you can see I've got into habit, Mike. I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at the camera. No,
0: I know. I was about to comment on that. One of the things that I find about Zoom that's interesting in this situation is that I look at the picture. So, in fact, I'm not quite looking in your eyes. And you've trained yourself to look at the camera.
1: Yeah. One-on-one, I probably should look, look at you. But what I tend to do is I flick between the two right, where possible. And so uh, if I'm presenting and I'm the main speaker, I'll look at the camera because then all the people think that they're being looked at in the eye yeah, yeah, yeah and because of where your camera is you're looking at the screen versus the camera is very small very small difference yes yeah but things like i steal from anybody and everybody there's a guy called mark Bowden who's a body language expert and he's adapted to zoom he even teaches zoom employees how to make zoom work better and one of his tips is and i'm going to show you this this have this a smiley face just above your camera that so means you. Every now and again, you smile because you can't help other than smile. It's above your camera, so it keeps your eyes up. Because if I'm looking down, immediately the light isn't great.
0: Mm-hmm. You look a bit
1: dodgy as well, don't you? <laughs> you do look dodgy. Yes. Mm. You, what's he? What's going on there? Is he checking mm. Tinder? What's going on? <laughs> um, And things like have a de- decent bit of lighting because so often I'm not going to move my laptop because it's I'm on Ethernet cable, which is, sometimes goes all over the shop. Great big, big window behind you. I can't see your face. And I say things like, actually, I can see your face better now than if we were sitting around a board table. Yeah. So whatever I need, I suppose, from your face is there. So give me some kind of, yeah, thumbs up. I get people to do thumbs up or thumbs down. Play the game. So this new medium is the thing now, we're not going to go back to fully face-to-face. No. So start doing things like a bit of digital body language, thumbs up, I agree, thumbs up, I disagree, oh, I'm not so sure, Um, hey, I've got an idea, or let's all get up, Uh, or even, I won't do it now, (laughs) dip out of shot, Uh, have funny things come into shot. Um, (laughs) Even even one of my rules is, I borrowed again from somebody, the 20-20-20 rule, which is every 20 minutes, look away at 20 feet or even 20 yards for 20 seconds. Just so your brain can relax a bit. right? And when I present or do a workshop, I stand up and I'm running in and out. And I'm do, I'm playing with the scene. This this guy, Mark Bowden, even did a whole YouTube about Vermeer and what we can learn from the Dutch masters in the, terms of the composition of the shot. So right. you can see I'm slightly off just because when you were studying law, I don't know if you did any art. I didn't do any art. I had an art teacher at school who hated art. No, we hated children, basically. <laughs> so <laughs> basically, he would just shout at us. And one time, somebody threw some clay across the room. And he said, who was that? And the, the boy didn't admit it. For the, So for the next eight weeks of term, we just sat in silence for a double period until the boy, who we kept saying, it's him, sir. He said, no, not until that boy admits it. That was our art lesson for a term. Great. Anyway, yeah. quite often in art, there are some lines. And this I'm post-rationalising it. But these lines <laughs> sort of disappear yes. into my eye. That's my put my thought. I kind of post-rationalized what I already had because it was something, I'm going way off track here, but when I did all these pilots, somebody said, yeah, yeah, forget all the neuroscience. We, you've got a bunch of books behind you. Why don't you color code them? Well, that's a good idea. So I did. And then it's great because people say, oh, it looks nice. Or they say, I hate it. I hate it because your books are all out of order. Yeah, I say <laughs> fiction, non-fiction, non-alphabetical, they're all thrown together.
0: My wife would be furious. <laughs> I did that with our bookshelf once. And she was furious. She said, put them all back. And I said, well, in what order would you like them? Alphabetical? By author? And she said,
1: yes. Went, okay, <laughs> you basically want a bookshop. <laughs> um, to my point here, Zoom, take it seriously and it will work. And in my book, I address the fact that we can't keep going, oh, isn't it a shame we can't meet face-to-face? We're not going back. And so don't just say, what a shame we can't. Say, how can we make this medium work better? Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like television. It's a little bit like radio. It's a little bit like face-to-face, but you've got chat as well. And you can show some slides and you can muck about with the screen. And I, yeah. I and sometimes with my workshops, you say to people, bring an object that means something to you, which <laughs> you, you couldn't do for a face-to-face conference. And of course, when they start talking about a toy or that cup you've got, their face lights up, they have energy, their communication skills are brilliant. Then they talk about business and then they go flat and dull and monotone. Mm. And I say, can't you bring some of that energy to your business? Yes. Because if you can't, the product you're talking about isn't that good. So just, just getting people to notice the difference in their communication style when they're talking about something they love and also something tangible. So for me, Zoom is something I put in my time capsule. Well, Zoom for me has been an absolute boon, the boon of Zoom,
0: because I did, as you say, I started this before lockdown and I went to people's houses and each interview would take a day because most of my friends live in London or I've gone further afield. And so I would travel to their house and then it seems rude to chat to them and then not stay for a bit longer and chat a bit more about other things. So it was hours and hours of my life. Now, there was nothing wrong. I loved it. I love meeting all my friends and seeing old people and meeting new friends. But I could do this on Zoom. To me, it's an opening
1: of relationship Mm -hmm. across the world. Mm -hmm. Because now I do my face-to-face workshops, coaching, whatever, but also, I'm doing Zoom as well, so I can do it across the world. So yeah. uh, I had to get up at 4 a.m. once to do one for some Australian cycling coaches. <laughs> they would never have flown me over there to do an hour and a half. No, quite. Um, so I've got dual sort of work stream, if you like. And I, I did one for the International Coach Federation, where I had people from Rwanda, from Vietnam, from Colombia, and Sweden, North America, and it was amazing. I would never have met these people without us all having to do a lot more travel and expense. So yes. to me, it is a boon because I get to meet people. Mm. And even more wonderful when I have met them in face-to-face thereafter, we've got a lot of backstory and yes. trust and rapport. And so Zoom, to me, is a boon. Then we
0: should put it into the time capsule. as your first thing. How marvellous. Right, so we've got two more. We've got one you want to keep and one you want to forget.
1: Uh, OK, I'm going to do the one I want to keep. And this was going to be the Comedy Store Players understandably that's been a massive part of your life it's, it's a huge part of my life little did mm. i know it would be mm. we started in 1985 and mike myers Kid hollaback dave cohen paul merton we didn't know where it would go kit and dave had uh, persuaded the comedy store to let us do sunday fridays mm-hmm. and saturdays were stand-up comedy improv wasn't really a thing then this is before whose line is it anyway people didn't really understand so the first half was stand-ups persuade the audience you know you get some proper comedy and then (laughs) (laughs) you know charlatans in the second half. and we grew slowly by january 86 we were doing the whole show the name the comedy store players came Mm -hmm. into life comedy to go sort of takeaway comedy different from written comedy Mm -hmm. um mike myers then went back to canada in 86 he'd been so brilliant we managed somehow to continue Uh, he'd gone back to second city to do the toronto main stage we carried on, but then pretty soon Don Ward, the man who owned the comedy store, said, it's not looking so good, you know, it hasn't really built the way we wanted. I can't really afford to pay you anymore. I just have to take a risk now, just take a door split. Um, but um, within six weeks, our door split was more than he'd been paying us. (laughs) Yes, of course. (laughs) Just at the wrong moment, he'd sort of then... Anyway, we now have this kind of symbiotic relationship. We we did... Of course, the Comedy Store is our window, our only client, if you like, and we're his only provider of improv comedy. And Mm -hmm. in October 2023, we'll be celebrating 38 years. 38 years, uh, which is extraordinary. We didn't know it would carry on. So we still do every Sunday it's been a thing that's i've been through all sorts of things and what many of us have you know divorce separation mm. bereavement
0: yes it's an amazing family isn't it
1: it's it's a family and for all of us going to the theater going to the comedy store on sunday night means we forget everything on that stage it's just beautiful we are responsible only to one another and to the audience and for those two hours, we can forget what maybe have been troubling us uh, before or after. Even you feel better, you know. Doctor theater, mm. the cold you had has gone. Yes. So it's this extraordinary thing. So Mike Myers and Kit Holbach taught us. I'd never seen an improv show till I was in in one, which is incredible <laughs> for people to say. Lots of proper improv workshops, but the audience gives suggestions and we act it out there and then. It's the most immediate form of theatre. It's joyous. It can't compare to scripted performance, which is different. And that's something honed and beautiful and will be repeated night after night. We say to the audience, it's unique. Just us. You now give us suggestions and we'll do our best. And the audience doesn't mind when we get it wrong. We make mistakes. Sometimes the mistake becomes the most beautiful thing. Yes. However, what I'm going to put in is Andy Smart, one of the Comedy Store players. And it's still very raw. Um,
0: we are speaking days after Andy died, aren't we? Which yes. is, a, I mean, was a real shock to everyone. Yes, uh, I saw uh, Sally Hodgkiss, who's a, a member of the company, saw players in the street, and she told me, and uh, it's, it was terribly upsetting. And actually, the f- I'm slightly covering for you here, Neil. Thank you, thank I, you. I can, I, I can see. I'll, that you're, I'll get
1: there. I'll get there. Thank uh, you. No,
0: it's extraordinary that if you said his name to many people, they would say who. And yet within the comedy world, universally, he was adored. The outpouring of love for him on Twitter and all forms of social media and within conversations that people have been having with each other, it's almost, there's not a person that in my world of comedy that I know who hasn't been moved by it and deeply upset by it. It was very sudden. He died of a heart attack. But in a way, there's a sort of, um, there's something joyous in that because it's very him that, you know...
1: (laughs) Yes, well, uh, what I realised the other day, and it was a great comfort to me, is, of course, it was his heart that failed, because Mm -hmm. he gave so much of his heart Uh, to the world. Yes. Not just comedy, uh, because he was also a huge football fan, and so he Hmm. was on the radio talking about non-league football. He'd go all across the country completely mad, following (laughs) Farnborough Town. And (laughs) audience members... So it's not just the performers who've known him at the Edinburgh Festival, at the Comedy Store, at Glastonbury. Mm-hmm. It's the people who see the show who say we loved him, we, we owned him. He he was we just felt so proprietary for him. And then of course he'd come and chat to us afterwards off stage. Of I bumped yeah. into him. He'd chat to anybody. And this is what I sort of thought the other day. I realised that often some of them, the people from my corporate world would come to the show uh, or there'd be just punters and we'd have a chat. And then I'd introduce somebody to Andy and then I'd have to go and see to somebody else. How you gonna-? And then I come back and Andy has found something in common with this person and has agreed to go and visit them, go and see them. <laughs> They're going to go and do something <laughs> together. He's given them some advice about this, that, or the other. And, <laughs> and, you know, some comedians are a bit grumpy. Mm-hmm. they They can be a bit of a chip. Andy had none of that. None, I no. could introduce him to the, the great and the good the quiet and the not so great or good. <laughs> and he would embrace them and yeah. he would love them and he would tell them stories. He would hear their stories. And for years, I have over 10 years, maybe even 15 years, every Christmas he would do the night shifts at uh, mm. crisis of Christmas. And that isn't easy. Uh, you have people who have all sorts of mental health issues, certainly physical issues. Mm. And he's doing the night shift, making sure that they're not in danger. There's no violence. They are safe. And he did that as a volunteer, often on a after a show with us on a Wednesday or Sunday, late December, early January. Off we go, and he'd do mm. that. And that was a measure of the man. Um, people on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram are just pouring out these beautiful words, so beautifully written, because Andy just was that, and he lived mm. so wonderfully. And I, I, I do think actually he did live almost every day as if it were his last. Mm. And he lived with generosity. He lived with openness. And I remember one time, because this the the kind of thing he'd do was Andy. And I'm thinking, when I said to my son, who's 14, Andy Smart has died. He said, oh, and he was so upset because Andy had gone with him to the cricket and stuff like that. And he said, but do you remember that time when Andy took us to uh, laser tag? So (laughs) an eight-year-old party, uh, we're taking the boys to laser tag. I don't have enough room for all of them in my car. So I think, who can I ask? Andy. So Andy's straight away, I'll play laser tag as well. (laughs) And, of course, they come back and all the boys are in Andy's car saying, that was such fun to be with Andy. That was more fun than laser tag because of the environment he created. Mm. Um, Andy's helped me move flat. And Josie Mm. was helping once, Josie Lawrence, he was helping her move something or whatever. And, of course, she she said to him, do you want a coffee? And she only had decaffeinated at that stage. (laughs) And he said, why would you have coffee without caffeine? (laughs) <laughs> it's the point right. of coffee is caffeine. And in a way, that's what life was for him. Why wouldn't you take on that challenge? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you say yes to the caffeine? Why wouldn't you take the risk? And his book, which I'll just hold up, is called A Hitch in Time. It's mm. just wonderful because it's all the adventures where you think, goodness, what are you doing, Andy? This is so dangerous. The to Run. Yes, he did with Marcus Brickstock, didn't he? The two yes, of them. it's so, crazy. And, crazy, and even <laughs> a few... Weeks ago, he was at the Altitude Festival, and he was doing something where he really hurt himself badly. <laughs> a man of 63, what are you doing, Andy? But since the age of eight, he's thought he was invincible because he had brand new wellies. And they went to the river, and he thought, oh, I'll go and stand in the river. And of <laughs> course, oh, the water's coming up to the wellies. Yes, it will go in my wellies. And of course, he's drowning. He's underwater. He talked about this in a show called The Danger Show. Mm. And eventually, somebody pulled him out of the river, and he was dead. Afterwards, they said, you're you're your hard to stop beating. But luckily, his mum, the night before, had watched Dr. No, where somebody <gasps> is brought back to life. So they sort of pumped him and eventually started breathing. And his mum had a brand new dress. And in the car to the hospital, he vomited all over her. <laughs> but she forgave him. And so since that day, he thought he was invincible. And mm. we all did. Mm-hmm. Um, the Roof Drinking Club Association of Western Australia, they would go and drink on the roof of the Tower of Pisa, you know, be told off. <laughs> Um, they were drinking on a train once in Western Australia. And they realised there's a tunnel coming up. They can't. The train's going quite fast, and they've the challenge is to be on the roof and drink beer. There's a tunnel coming up. <laughs> what do you do? I can't jump. It's going quite fast. I can't get down between the gap in the carriage. So what he did he lies as flat as possible, as flat as possible, <laughs> and he survives. But the whole of the front of his body, the skin has been ripped off. Oh my god! Exactly. This is the kind of thing Andy did. Mm-hmm. And you kind of are glad to have known him, to know somebody who do all these things. So I don't have to. My daughter, he was he was her Glasto dad. The the understanding is I don't want to go to Glastonbury. I I, you know, I like toilets and warm water yeah, yeah. And, and and house. He's <laughs> so you can take her. He was a character that everyone loved. Not that he demanded the attention, he would reflect the attention back onto you. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. When you say you know him you probably played with us at the comedy store. You've, you've yeah, bumped yeah, yeah. into him. But you don't know him particularly well. But you have this
0: warmth. Oh, absolutely. Because Well, there's a phrase in... in um, oh, it's in A Christmas Carol. It's a, it's about Mrs. Fizzywig. I think I told him this once. And he went, oh, that's nice, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that Mrs. Fizzywig is described as Mrs. Fizzywig entered the party one huge substantial smile. <laughs>
1: Yes. And that was him, I think. He did. And, of course, in the show, he was always giggling. People loved to see him corpse (laughs) um, because he hadn't heard it before, so he thought it was hilarious. (laughs) And we all tried to keep a straight face, very hard to, but Andy loved it. And, of course, this is the thing that's not always perhaps realised. He was extremely good. Mm -hmm. He was very, very good. He really listened. He could play fun characters. And he never said no. You know, if you say, here comes the beautiful princess, Andy would come on and do his best beautiful princess. Yes. The villainous Lord Sainsbury, or, or, the villainous, <laughs> <laughs> in, the villainous <laughs> Lord Pooh, whatever. he comes on and he plays the character. And he's great at story as well. He listens, he works, he builds a story, which is all of the improv ethos that we would talk about. Mm. And he would enjoy it. Mm. But he was very, very good. Um, of course, he was good at story because I do not know anybody who has read as many books as Andy. He was voracious. He always had an, his nose in a book. On your pub quiz team, he, he'd know everything about so many things. He'd visited yes, yes. so many places. This book I'm holding up again, A Hitch in Time, is 72,000 miles hitchhiking over a sort of six year period. He's been all around the world. He's found himself in the most fascinating situations the time he got um, handcuffed to a radiator in new york by a, a sadomasochistic prostitute and the only way <laughs> out was to get her drunker than he was because he knew he could take it and she eventually passed out and he kind of <laughs> had to run away naked just...
0: and he could take it as well and he, and he could i, I take mean it. Uh, there's no doubt about it i've never known a man well maybe slightly rivaled by steve frost i was gonna the two say of them
1: together yeah but steve frost eventually just goes home and he carries on so Mrs. Fizzywig, a substantial smile. Yes, mm. just that joie de vivre and that joy, but also the quiet, reflective side, the thoughtfulness of "Yes, I'll go." Our friend Jim Sweeney, who has MS, lives somewhere outside London, where he's looked after because he can't move really very much at all. But who's going to who goes to see him regularly? Mm-hmm. Be smart. Who's the one helping, bringing certain supplies that help him? his condition, Andy Smart. So that sort of thing, not showbiz at all, not look at me, aren't I grand? Things like a restaurant once, he ordered oysters as starter. Then he ordered oysters as his main course. Then he ordered (laughs) oysters. And then by the end, they said, if you eat this last one, how many did he have? Kind of 360 or something like that. And then (laughs) eventually ended up with, he got them for free and the whole audience stood up and applauded. Uh, That's the kind of thing that... Andy would do, not to show off, but no. for the joy of it.
0: Yeah, and on a regular basis. That's and on point. a
1: regular basis, even when he loves gambling, he's one of the best pundits around. When he was 14, he used to take money from the other boys as to who would win wacky races. <laughs> 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 Including a boy who stupidly said that Dick Dacity would win. 25 to 1, good odds, but he never wins. <laughs> and I suddenly realised, you know, finally Dick Dacity has won the wacky race, mm. and we've lost Andy. But my goodness, we now just say isn't it wonderful that we had him he lived seven lives at least and for those moments he touched so many people 10000 people i was wondering today how many did he touch in a tiny way off stage on stage just being around the bulls at pamplona going to the cheese rolling in somerset just he would go to these bizarre events and be a known character so it's not just people who know from his comedy career so andy smart my time capsule i want to see you again andy uh soon
0: lovely lovely what a great man thank you uh well let's talk about one thing you'd like to get rid of from your life
1: yes i was wondering about this is a tough one because i don't want to be too prissy (laughs) (laughs) let the frenchman in you out (laughs) come on yes my friend david schneider told me this french thing which is well it's um it works in practice, but does it work in theory? Sort of the, the love of philosophy, the philo. We discuss this over our, our croissant. Um, but you know that thing that seems to... There seems to be a memo gone out to all drivers, which is there's no need to signal anymore. Oh, I'm with you on this. I'm sort of torn between this one because mm. what happened? I didn't get the memo. For me, it's still <laughs> mirror signal manoeuvre, as I had for my driving test 400 years ago. I, I Mirror signal manoeuvre. I can't do anything without yeah. mirror signal. So that's one. And Mike, you might have to help me. I know some of your guests have managed to get two in here. The other one is the uh, random use or the illogical use of the word myself or yourself. <laughs> so I was in a plane the other day, and this very, very nice steward would say, Would you like something for yourself? <laughs> and then myself, myself, I. You don't need to say, you say you or I. Yes. I never do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that you've used it correctly, then. Correctly, you see. Correctly. it's a, uh, I, don't, I meant to Google this, but it's, it's a reflexive pronoun. Mm-hmm. So for emphasis, I myself have met the Queen, or I just hit myself in the face. That's, <laughs> yes. that's fine. Don't be so hard on yourself. That's fine. You don't mm-hmm. say don't be so hard on you, but yourself. Yourself, sir? <laughs> <Drink>? <laughs> I think they think it sounds polite
0: yes if you're asking what would you like madam what would you like and uh, if you say just send the last word and say and you yeah that could sound a little rude maybe
1: yes yeah you could say and you say or madam so so they're not really terrible things are they but the broader thing is i do believe in language and i think we should help people write and speak so they're expressing their thoughts well on the other hand i'm not a sort of grammar purist because i've got a friend whose job is words Mm-hmm. and neil taylor of schwa consulting and he made up the name ocardo for example oh. and he says it's fine language is developing so i said i hate when people say like he says no mm. it's interesting because it can be for emphasis or it's instead of speech i'm like hello and she's like crazy which is she's approximately crazy or she's so crazy or whatever mm. so he says okay and language does develop i'm accepting that language changes but mm-hmm. yourself myself is actually incorrect Yes. And I think people are doing their best because they think it sounds less rude than you.
0: In a way, it's sort of trying to make the thing you're saying sound a bit more import, as it were. Yes. Uh, yes. So you say things like, well, for me personally, <laughs> but,
1: but who else is it for? You know? <laughs> yes, uh, yes. that's a good one as well. And mm. people say, and literally killed me, literally. No, you didn't. He <laughs> uh, didn't kill me. Uh, but, you know, we're being a bit prissy here, perhaps. That's all right. And that's all right. I I do like funny non-grammatical things, like in Viz, when they say he's off of the telly. Yes. (laughs) That sort of thing. And my friend Greg Proops will say axe instead of ask. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, I do quite like sort of hip-hop poetry when, you know, we can see how grammar is changing and what we say now would feel very odd perhaps to people in Shakespearean times and even in Victorian times. So things do change. Mm. So my friend Neil with a linguistics degree said... In Victorians, they would say, me and my friend, whereas now Mm -hmm. we'd say, my friend and I. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. another one. When you say, he saw my friend and I. No, you say, he saw my friend and me. I'm sounding terribly prissy here, but just, (laughs) I would like those people who don't feel empowered to feel empowered, and language is one way of doing that. So Mm. just to be serious for a moment, um, we talk about literacy, but there's a a whole movement now, uh, charity and schools which are giving primacy to oracy mm. as in oral communication, because so much of life and career depends on being able to have good oral skills. So yes. being able to have a job interview, give a presentation, speak up in meetings. Mm. And that is something that not every child has been given. No. And I want them to have that. I don't mind if you misspell things. I would like you to be able to say, I have a voice at the top table, whatever my background, whatever my accent but I can speak in ways that I express my argument. And I know that words change and grammar changes and evolves. The more general point is uh, a shame that we glibly assume people are ill-educated or not bright if they don't speak in a certain way. Now, I speak in the way that the ruling class has. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I'm fortunate. And I don't mind playing with language, but I want every person to feel empowered. Whenever I speak, I will be listened to.
0: Some people would express themselves in what would be regarded as a completely non-grammatical and using the wrong words, but actually what they're saying is very clear. And that's what you need in life, I think,
1: is to get your point across. Exactly. So for example, I teach presentation skills and so many times people have been told at the age of 11 or 12 that they can't do it. And me saying to them, just tell the story of who you are is hard for them. And the joy I have of teaching people is when they do get over that. And they tell the story and they can stand up and make their argument. That feels wonderful to me. And I do did, I did it one person at a time. But it's so obvious that people have had a moment, one moment where somebody's given them a feedback that's been so destructive, they've thought, I can't do that ever. No. And um, we can still learn things. Even you and I, who are 97 years old, uh, <laughs> our brain is still malleable. We can still learn things. And of course, if you're learning at the age of 97, you're, you're going to be more alive.
0: Fabulous. Well, then for you, yourself, I will put that in there.
1: <laughs> and maybe squeeze in signalling as well. Maybe, Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah no, signalling. Yeah, that's a given. Absolutely. <laughs> there you go. Well, more signalling
1: is going in the bin for this one.
0: Yes. <laughs> lovely. Neil, thank you very much for being my guest on My Time capsule. It's been really lovely to talk to you. It's lovely to see you always thank you
1: thank you and thank you for helping me out when I couldn't cope. talk about Andy it's been really lovely to talk about him with somebody it's just been joyous and it's it's a wonderful thing you've done here by the way it's just
0: lovely I can't believe I've done it because I've always been well you may have noticed I've always been a man of ideas with no action (laughs) you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me Mike Fenton-Stevens and my guest Neil Malarkey Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then please do click on the rating stars and subscribe to my time capsule so we can let you know whenever we have a new episode out. Quite often, as it turns out, so do tell your friends and spread the word. If you haven't got any friends, then tell the world by writing a review. Actually, that's a bit rude. We really do appreciate everyone who's made the effort. Thank you. My time capsule and I, that's just to keep Neil happy, are on social media, so do follow us, or listen to the theme tune on Spotify if I talking all over it annoys you. That's also one for Neil. You can get this podcast ad-free if you subscribe to ACAST+. Plus. Details in the description of this pod. This was a cast-off production for ACAST, and it was produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, see you next time. Hope the weather stays good for you. The newspaper says we due a bad spell of rain. Unfortunately, they spelt it R-A-N-E, which, let's face it, is the worst spell of rain any of us have ever seen. Bye.